Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ball and Chain. I'm your host, Mark Thomas, and it has been a while since we've done a podcast episode. Things have been super insanely busy uh, over here at Zen Sports Headquarters. I uh, appreciate your patience with us as we uh, haven't done an episode for a while, um, but we've uh, we've been doing some pretty cool announcing of things uh, lately, and we've got some even more exciting announcements coming up. Uh, so that that's uh, that's the good excuse for today. Uh, we actually announced a couple weeks ago that we signed a deal, uh, Zen Sports did specifically, uh, to uh, expand into Nevada, which should hopefully happen in the next nine to twelve months. And uh, yeah, we've got some other cool announcements coming up as well. So what has been happening? Uh, in the last six to eight weeks uh, since we last uh, chatted. So uh, all of Americans, most of American sports have come back or they were already back. Uh, the NBA has returned to the bubble. Uh, my bucks fell to the lowly magic the other day, which was just uh, eye-popping. But then it was uh, a little bit redeemed with the Lakers uh, losing uh, the same uh, to the Blazers uh, later that evening as well. And uh, yeah, the I think the I've said this a few times on Twitter. I think the quality of play in the bubble has been absolutely outstanding. Uh, everyone has been, all the games have been entertaining. I'm not sure if it's the lack of travel or uh, the fact that everyone had fresh legs after you know four months, four and a half months of being off. But uh, the the basketball, even the regular season wrap up of eight games prior to uh, the playoffs starting, uh, has been has been great. Uh, NHL has been uh, great for the most part as well. Uh, Major League Baseball has definitely had a few hiccups uh, with a few teams, especially the Cardinals, uh, uh, missing, I don't know what it was, 12, 13 or so games uh, due to uh, testing positive, uh, due to players testing positive for COVID. Um, but I think all in all, uh, the the return of sports has been, has been fantastic. Uh, seen just an absolute surge in sports betting. I mean, not that... People weren't betting on European soccer and esports and MMA prior to American sports returning, but I think definitely people were ready for uh, some of the uh, American sports to come back and really start to to get the wagering down. I know I've, we've seen a huge uptick in, in Zen sports, particularly on that, which has been awesome. And uh, what else is going on? So we've got uh, things are look like they're getting a little bit better with the pandemic, which is great. And uh, we've got wildfires and bad air quality here in the Bay Area. So my windows are shut and um, hopefully uh, hopefully uh, the air circulation in here is uh, <laughs> not too stifling. Um, super excited for uh, my guest today on the Ball and Chain podcast. Uh, it is David Apertum, uh, who's a senior writer over at ESPN, focusing on uh, sports betting and especially the U.S. Uh, sports betting uh, landscape. And we are going to talk uh, anything and everything about uh, sports betting and uh, what's going on in the U.S. and uh, touch on a few other cool areas. So uh, without further ado, I would like to welcome David onto the show. How is it going today, David? I'm hanging in there. I'm glad that uh, sports are back. Uh, I'm invested in your bucks a little bit to to win it all, and I uh, was disappointed by their uh, first game uh, performance there. I hope you can uh, get a little pet talk and turn them around. Yeah, you know, a couple things. One is I think the lack of 
home court advantage, I think was maybe just a little, a bit of a, a shocker. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think while players knew it was going to be the case where they weren't going to have home court, I think once the games actually got started to not, you know, be running onto the court, you know, with uh, the pregame and, you know, when you go on that kind of run in the third quarter to get back in the game, to not have the, the house coming down on that. I, I think, I think there's something to that. Now I do think the players will adjust. So I think, I mean, I don't see the Bucks having any danger of winning the series, but it doesn't bode well for the rest of the playoffs. It feels like, but we'll see. So do you have a, do you have a, do you have something on them to, uh, to make the finals or is it just for this series? I took them to win it all. I got nice. uh, a little bit close to three to one. Uh, my thinking right. was if they can get through the East that, uh, they'll either be a small favorite or a very, very small dog, certainly less three uh, three to one uh, in the finals. Um, so I thought there would be some hedge opportunities there. Um, but gosh, if, if they struggle all the way through, uh, either the Clippers or somebody catches fire over in the Western Conference, they may be a bigger dog than I want them to be. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I was listening to uh, Bill Simmons on the ringer last night, and I think he hit the nail on the head, which I actually was saying this during last year's playoffs is Bud has got to tighten down the rotation. I mean, he was playing 10 guys this last game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's great, and that works during the regular season when you're trying to, uh, you know, save minutes and keep guys fresh. But in the playoffs, everybody needs to be ready to go. And it felt a little bit like they were still in experimentation mode, um, like with experimenting with the rotation and, you know, how many guys they were going to play and stuff. And I just, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, why, you know, I mean, Kyle Korver actually didn't have a terrible game, but, you know, why certain guys are getting, you know, all these minutes just doesn't really uh, make sense. So I think he's got to tighten that rotation down to eight players. And I think I think doing that, um, you know, I think that will mitigate some of the issues because you can't have you can't have anyone in the playoffs out there who's who's bricking threes. Threes are such a big part of the, of the game nowadays and, um, you know, or guys that just haven't had comfortability playing with others. So. Hopefully, hopefully this is the eye opener that they needed. I mean, let's be real. The Magic won the first. The Magic won the first game against the Raptors last year. Correct. See how that turned out, right? <laughs> so, so hopefully we're good. Um, okay. So, what are your thoughts? I, why don't we Why don't we start actually with that? We'll get We'll get into the sports betting piece. What are your thoughts on overall? Um, let's just call it pandemic play, like bubble play for the NBA. I guess bubble play for the NHL. Uh, no fans for baseball. What is What has been your impression of? Uh, we can just focus on American sports here, uh, mm-hmm. since that's uh, that's what's back. What's your what's been your thoughts on the return of play of American sports? Well, I've loved it for first. Just the day games have been great for my. I work from home, so instead of having uh, whatever on the TV now, I can have a basketball game or something on it in the background, which has been great. Um, an NBA specific uh, something that stood out to me is the scoring. Uh, scoring was up pretty significantly. I had our research team uh, look into it. I think it was up six or eight points per game, something around there off the top of my head. And a lot of that was, uh, I at least attributed to an increase in fouls called. Uh, there was also, I think, about a four to five more fouls called per game in the bubble 
than there were during the regular season. Um, some people speculated that because the crowd is not there, uh, the ref can hear better and they can hear the slaps and, and, get, and call more fouls. So uh, the scoring has been interesting. You know, we just talked about your bucks. It seemed like they're the only team that can't, couldn't shoot at least uh, in that first <laughs> yeah. game. I mean, gosh, every team I've, I've watched has just been great at shooting. Um, so That's that has been something that stood out to me. Um, baseball has been great again. Glad it's back going. I thought the whole debate over uh, Tatis and uh, the Padres was, was ridiculous, um, uh, to be honest. And then uh, I haven't caught as much hockey as, as these other sports. I'm not as big a hockey fan as I am a uh, basketball, certainly, and baseball. Uh, just getting back on the field, though, for everything, it, it was a really a sigh of relief and just kind of a, a boost in optimism. Um, when everything shut down there that uh, you know week in March, it was it was really kind of terrifying, uh, you know, as a U.S. citizen and as a sports writer, you know, it, it just yeah. uh, we didn't know. Oh, are we going to have anything to write about? Are we all going to get laid off? We we we, we didn't know, and that uncertainty um, certainly doesn't compare to the uncertainty around the health and, and lives lost of everything. But um, to right. get sports back, it, it was a positive step, obviously. Yeah, I mean, a couple things there. So, I mean, sports is such a huge, like, distraction from a lot of the uh, sometimes tough realities of, of regular life. And I think, um, as you said, when it went away, it, it was this huge void that we were used to being able to turn to when things might get rough or we just need a break. Uh, of course, you know, we want to be entertained and, you know, we're following our favorite teams and we're betting on sports. Um, and when we couldn't have that anymore, I, I found that it felt like people, like, noticeably got crabbier, uh, especially those in my network that like sports. Um, and, you know, it was this, this void, as I mentioned. Um, and when it came back, it's like, okay, you got to have some sense of normalcy when you're going through the things like we went through uh, as a country the last five months. Uh, having having some sense of normalcy and be able to flip the TV on or, you know, go on to the live stream or, uh, you know, put the earbuds on at work and uh, listen to, uh, you know, your favorite team on NBA.com, whatever it might be. Like, that's just, it's comforting and it feels good. It feels normal. And uh, it, it really does feel like a, a sense of normalcy has returned. Um, so specifically on a couple points you brought up. So I think what's interesting, I think it was 538 that did a story a while back that looked into the, tr and I'm not sure if I agree with this, but I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts, that looked into one of the true advantages of home court which is referee calls. And so you mentioned how, uh, you know, the referees are able to like hear the slaps and the, the bumps and stuff like that more uh, with quieter crowds. So one thing I actually have, and I kind of touched on this at the beginning with the, with the lack of home court, one thing I would like to see actually in the bubble, if, if, if they want to bring some sense of normalcy um, back in is, is possibly allowing maybe someone from uh, the home team to uh, to like crank up some crowd noise as things are going like really, really well for the team um, to do something um, to just like kind of get that uh, atmosphere going. Because I do actually, one of the reasons why home court in the NBA is so powerful in addition to possible, you know, referee bias is just the, the noise can really, really get to a, a visiting team. And also, of course, jack up the jack up the home team. So I, I, I'd like to see, cause there's just, there's just like no, literally no home court advantage <laughs> in the bubble whatsoever. And I, I think that really affects teams. You know, 
it varies when you talk to the odds makers on how much stock they put into home field, home court advantage. Uh, I, was, I have one veteran guy in Vegas that always says the only true home court advantage is in Denver with the altitude and, and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, and I had another one say that he thought um, what you kind of mentioned, hey, if we get on a big run here, sometimes the crowd gets into it and things kind of spiral a little mm-hmm. bit. The run is goes longer uh, because right. the crowd gets into it. And without that, maybe it's easier for a team to, uh, you know, stop those runs and, and slow them down. Um, I, I thought I heard and maybe you, you heard as well. Uh, I, I don't know if it was on the Clippers game or somebody. It felt like. I heard a defense chant um, that was being plugged in, you know, defense, like they, they do it right around. I wondered if that was something kind of like what you were saying, that they were trying to implement some sort of home court, home court environment, at least uh, through the audio. I maybe just completely misheard that, but maybe. No, I think they've been doing some of it, but I think they've been doing some of it, but they're not making it that loud. Right. Like it's not, it's, it's, and so then, you know, as you mentioned, then the referees hear more, um, you know, there's probably yeah more fouls, which I don't know if that's a great thing or not because I I prefer to see him play. But um, yeah, I mean I I I, I, I mean obviously this is all new for for of course the NBA to uh, go through this, but I think that's been my otherwise I mean it's been great, but that has definitely I think been my biggest observation because then think about like what you just said a, a second ago here is that you know the the things start to spiral out of control for the visiting team. I think one of the reasons you're seeing like a couple of these upsets. And or a couple of like these lesser teams still play very well is, you know, I mean, you got to have ice in your veins to be able to, you know, knock down jump shots when, you know, you've got, you know, crazy noise and stuff like that. And sure. <clears throat> when you don't have that, you know, it's just it's just a bunch of guys shooting around in a gym. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so there's no pressure to that. I mean, yeah, there's people watching, obviously, but it just feels like, um, you know, the, the pressures, it feels like the pressure is really off the lesser teams. I still expect the better teams to bounce back just because of pure talent. But I, I, it's going to be very interesting as the rest of the playoffs go on, um, how that plays out. Because I, I, I just saw it. Like, I mean, you, like you know, I watched most of the Bucks Magic game, and you just didn't see any fear in the Magic at all. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it would have been the same thing if that game had been in Pfizer. But, anyways, um, yeah. And I've caught, I've caught a couple of hockey games. I am in the into the NHL. It's actually the one Bay Area team I root for since we never had a hockey team growing up in Wisconsin. Um, so I am a Sharks fan and, uh, they never, they never, sadly, they couldn't even make, uh, uh, the round of 24. So <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty pathetic, but, uh, but that's actually been, I'd say pretty, pretty good quality too. Um, so yeah, so, so would love to, uh, kind of, I know we kind of skipped over uh, your background, but would love to, to just for the audience, you know, uh, have them be walked through what, uh, you know, what your background is, you know how you got started in covering sports and then how you got, you know, uh, kind of um, migrating over into the world of sports betting uh, sure. just for, just for our audience here. And, uh, and then let's go from there. Well, I, I was a traditional uh, newspaper guy. Um, I got my start. I was the football beat writer for Oklahoma state at a, a little paper in Enid, Oklahoma. It's home to Mark Price, former NBA uh, star, um, that's where I started. I lived in New Orleans for about oh, 10 to 15 years, uh, where I worked down at the Slidell Century News, another uh, newspaper that's a suburb uh, of New Orleans. Um, Chris Duhon, uh, Matt Forte are from Slidell, Louisiana. Um, from there, once Hurricane Katrina 
uh, kind of hit us. Uh, the paper got demolished, and I ended up moving to Atlanta, where I am a little bit, a little bit north of Atlanta now. I'm um, working for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I covered everything from high school sports uh, to some colleges and, and so forth, and ultimately became uh, an editor for the sports section of the website, um, and, and it worked that way. Um, about 2008, the uh, newspaper industry, as everyone knows, is, uh, had a rough stretch, and it was going downhill. They were laying off a lot of people, and at that time, I was also getting ready to become a dad. Uh, so I started looking around to freelance just to make sure I was a nervous guy at the, you know, looking around and I started just writing real, uh, you know, brief uh, sports betting articles on, uh, you know, previews for SEC football and what the odds were for a site called covers.com. Anybody that's, uh, uh, you know, paid attention to sports betting for a long time here in the U S is probably familiar with that site. It's got a pretty big community and, uh, uh, once I started writing about the, you know, sports betting, I started finding that the stories were just kind of fascinating to me and the characters that came out of it. And so um, <laughs> I always have ambitions of becoming kind of a creative writer. Uh, and I think some of these stories really kind of fueled it. So um, that's where I kind of shifted over from traditional newspaper, traditional sports coverage. Uh, to covering more sports betting. Um, about 2009, 2010, um, I kind of dedicated myself all to sports betting coverage. And at that time, uh, sports betting, of course, had not been uh, authorized to expand outside of Nevada. It was really restricted and there was still a pretty big stigma around it. The sports league still wanted no part of it, uh, which was always kind of crazy to me. Uh, but I, I kind of noticed that, you know, there is a niche here that's undercovered and there's obviously a, a, a really large audience uh, for it and that they are not getting satisfied with the coverage they're getting of it just because it was so limited. And even the uh, big media companies were scared to get involved. Um, so then in 2014, uh, a guy named Chad Millman, who is now head of Action Network, um, he had kind of spearheaded sports betting coverage in ESPN. He was kind of a, a lone wolf doing it there at the time. Uh, 2015, he, he moved up the ranks to a vice president role of content and uh, brought me over to kind of launch ESPN sports betting coverage in 2014. Um, it's kind of funny because I started in September of 2014. Uh, November 2014 is when Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, wrote right. his op-ed in the New York Times um, saying, hey, let's take a new approach to sports betting. Let's, let's look at this and see if we really need to be keeping this in the shadows or if it's better for it to come into the sunlight. So, He's just been so good for the NBA. Um, and I think not just on the sports betting side, but he I, he's like the one commissioner I feel like I trust that it really is trying to do what's best for the game. And I think that sports betting is one of those things because, um, you know, if you're not doing what's best for the game, then you look at that and say, no, that's bad or no, that's wrong. But if you're doing what's best for the game, you recognize, hey, that's engagement opportunity. And this is an opportunity to appeal to another uh, audience. And we can keep the two separated. We can keep it clean, keep it uh, you know, 100% legitimate and, and not run afoul of any types of issues. And just at least being able to think that much out, outside the box is, I think, such a testament to him and, and everything that he's done for the NBA. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, big fan of Commissioner Silver. 
Uh, he was the first ever uh, acting commissioner that I was able to do a sit-down interview with for ESPN the magazine in 2015. I was all nervous. I was completely nervous. <laughs> we went up to the NBA office, and uh, there was a big photo shoot because it was it was the cover story uh, of it, you know. And I was getting ready to ask questions about Tim Donahue and all these things to a commissioner, uh, but he has this way, this demeanor that was very sincere. It was very casual. And he just treated me like I was, uh, you know, an award-winning writer or something, uh, that I'd been a seasoned guy that had interviewed him thousands of times. And uh, I really appreciated that, and I agree with you. Uh, his measured approach uh, to the way he speaks and to the issues that he, he, he uh, addresses uh, has always been very impressive to me. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so that takes you to 2014. Now let's fast forward to a few years later where – uh, the Supreme Court in May of 2018 struck down PASPA, which, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, was the essentially like the federal ban on sports betting. Um, and then once that was struck down, it didn't legalize sports betting at the federal level in the U.S. It didn't make it legal in every state, contrary to what a lot of other people think. It just simply said, hey, states, now if you want to legalize it, you can go ahead and do so. So would love to you know, uh, kind of hear about uh, <laughs> what started going through your brain and, uh, you know, uh, you know what that meant for you, especially as a sports betting writer, uh, starting in around May of 2018, as the Supreme Court ruling came down and, and what your thoughts were uh, moving forward. Yeah, it was a, a surreal day for sure. I mean, Right when I kind of got into covering sports betting seriously, uh, that's right when New Jersey started their push to do this. As New Jersey was the case that that got to the Supreme right. Court that eventually struck down uh, PASPA, uh, and you know there was setback after setback. They kept losing. They kept losing New Jersey. That is, they they lost every decision. It seemed they kept appealing and kept appealing and kept it alive, and then they had oral arguments. They finally got to the Supreme Court. Uh, and the oral arguments were December 4th, I believe, 2017. So it was just about five or six months before uh, the ruling. And I attended those at the Supreme Court. And, and you know, everybody came out of there and all the legal experts saying, New Jersey's got this. They're going to win. They're, they're, they're the big favorite now. And uh, so March, May 14th, excuse me, May 14th, 2018, um, the decision came out. came out at about 10.04 a.m., I believe. Um, and from that day on, I, it's just been kind of a, a whirlwind how quickly things have changed, how aggressive the sports leagues have been to get involved in it. And, uh, you know, we're going to ready to have sports books in stadiums. Uh, that's one of the right. bigger surprises for me. I never thought that was happening. It would happen after this, but it is happening. We have one in, in um, Capital One Arena in Washington, yeah. D.C., and there are several other stadiums that are looking into this. So uh, I think that's been the biggest surprise for me, that not only the stadiums, but just in general how aggressive the sports leagues have been after all those years of, you know, complete harsh rhetoric and just disdain for sports betting. Suddenly uh, they, they can't get enough of it. Right. And so I think it I think it's a couple things. A super good analysis there. I think it's a couple things. One is I think the leagues were re waiting for some like kind of uh, legal, just general legal or even moral approval, uh, you know, from uh, from our, you know, legal bodies. Mm -hmm. And when it comes from the Supreme Court, I mean, that's as, as, as good as it gets. Right. You know, Supreme Court is now telling you, hey, you can go do this. 
that's a pretty that's a pretty big thumbs up uh, that uh, you know that the leagues can get. And then so I think that's part of it. But then the other part of it is why it's taken off, like what you said, is really just I, I just I just think the appetite is just so strong from consumers and sports fans and enthusiasts and of course obviously sports betters. But it's it, everybody wants it. Like I, I mean, yes, obviously you get your few stragglers out there who are like, no, this is bad or whatever. Uh, for the game or, you know, detracts from what it's really supposed to be about and whatnot. But I mean, rarely do, I, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in the sports betting world, but I expected, you know, even with just what we do to be, to have a ton more pushback and, um, you know, to have a bunch of people calling it out on social media, like, you know, this is like the, you know, the, the fall of our society and all that kind of stuff. And it's just not like, I mean, everyone, like you said, everyone can't get enough of it. So I, I don't know if it's like a, I don't know if it's a generational thing, like millennials and Gen Z, they're just, they're like, let me do what I want. And, um, you know, obviously the Supreme court obliged and the States are starting to oblige, but I think it's kind of that combo of the Supreme court saying, Hey, at the top, yep, you can go do this. And the demand is clearly, clearly there which is, I think it's, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I absolutely agree. In fact, um, after the Supreme Court ruling, uh, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman appeared at a conference that I was at, and I actually asked him, you know, were you actually glad that you lost, you know, so you could explore these opportunities? And he laughed and kind of blew it off, you know, as a a prosecutor, you never want to lose or whatever. Uh, But I I really do feel like uh, that, there were so many more benefits that they finally were able to, uh, you know, accept that they were able to uh, feel comfortable taking, uh, you know, getting into the business or, or having point spread discussion around their games and, and so forth. That uh, the leagues, um, you know, that 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 ruling was a, was a benefit as much as they lost, but it, it was a benefit to them. And to your second point, right. um, the the moral pushback. You know, there is one area that I still think it it gets, and this is going to get into Zen Sports and your guys' plans a little bit, but I feel that the government does not want people to be a professional better. They do not want that to be a career that uh, is easy to get involved in and easy to be successful at. And they are allowing um, state governments and regulators uh, to put in rules in place that, that discourage people from being a professional better. Uh, right now, if somebody were to ask me, oh, I, I want to be a professional better, I'd say, no, you don't. You don't. It's the, the Why is the government not wanting that? I think that's where we get the moral morality. They, they uh, are okay for some reason of, of the business side of bookmaking, but in terms of being a professional better or a professional gambler, uh, they just don't think that is uh, morally acceptable acceptable for some reason. I, I, I don't know. But uh, the only thing that I can think that why we're seeing some of these rules that are allowing sports books to uh, basically discriminate against some players that are skillful um, right. is from a moral objection. They're just never going to let uh, allow the professional betters to be the ones that decide what rules are in place. And uh I understand it from the business side of things. If I think a guy is doing damage to my bottom line, if I would help my bottom line, if I did not take his money, then from a business standpoint, it would make sense. Um, But just the rules that are in place, uh, only thing I can think of is it is some sort of moral objection to being a professional better. Yeah. And I think, 
I think what's interesting there is, well, so let's, let's break that down to a couple of parts. So uh, one on the, on the business side and the other on the, on the moral side. So on the business side, um, so obviously like you take poker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, casinos or uh, tournament hosts are never going to care who the winner is because, you know, they, there's always going to be a winner and, you know, they just take a rake regardless of who that winner is. Right. It's actually, if you look at that, a, a poker game is peer to peer. Sure, <laughs> it's not. It's not a. It's not having a house in the middle, like a, I don't know the house being one of the players there going up against everybody. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't give a damn who wins. They just. They just care about, uh, you know, the 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 rake. Um. So I I definitely, I definitely see that as part of the problem. Is uh is that now we have uh to kind of dive in that a little deeper. We have had. A couple podcast guests this year, and uh, one of them in particular was uh, Dan uh, from Cleet Street, which is a, an analytics company. And uh, you know they've built out some really, really, really interesting models, especially around Major League Baseball uh, betting on baseball. That uh, because of this, especially when the game when the season is 162 games, that over the course of that many games, because they're able to get that that many games in um, and that many bets in on that many games they really are able to overcome like a lot of the law of averages um, that, and, and just using pure data and models uh, to, to do it. I, you know, I, I would have to say that I think the problem is, is that um, I think the problem is, is that book ma- traditional bookmakers, I think they still go about setting odds and taking bets in kind of a little bit of an old school way. And I think that if they were truly armed with uh, you know, some of the, you know, uh, data scientists, uh, and, and data that, you know, some of the, the professionals use, I, I think the, I think they would have more comfortability with it. I just, I just think they're, because they can just ban somebody versus take their business on and have to try and do better. They just take the former because that's an easier way out instead of like hiring, like go hire some MIT data scientists that can really crank through this and really, really understand what this should be. Instead, you've got some old guy in the back room, you know, watching the game, setting odds, maybe using a little bit of data, but uh, whatnot. And and so he doesn't stand a chance against uh, the guys that really are using data to uh, to determine what's best. I mean, you make an excellent point. I, I don't know if you saw what happened yesterday. We had the Raptors-Nets uh, game. And at halftime, one of the influential Sports books offshore, the most influential one. Well, they put up a line that was Raptors minus three and a half for the second half. Raptors were down three for the game, and the spread was 11 for the whole game. So three and a half was a bad number. And mm. instead of trusting their own numbers, and I talked to some of the bookmakers who, uh, you know, basically just copied the the, the bad number on there, uh, they, they did. They just put three and a half. And shortly after the line grew all the way to eight, which is what it was supposed to be. And when you talk to some of the bookmakers, they're like, well, if I would have gone ahead and trusted my own number and put up an eight, I know exactly what would have happened. They would have got flooded on this information. They would have got flooded on taking, you know, the the eight points uh, by the guys that they call board cleaners or uh, guys that basically just anytime there's a number off the market, um, they'll take it. 
just because uh, they think there's an advantage there and they think it'll eventually gravitate toward the market and and they'll have some buyback opportunity or so forth. Well, the the influential sports book ended up canceling all wagers on that three, three and a half point spread that they got and saying that it was a bad line, which it was. But in the meantime, uh, all the books here in the U.S. that copied them uh, got hit on it and, you know, probably lost a little bit money. And you'd like to be able to think that you could trust your number enough to say, okay, this number is off what the market is, but I know it is more accurate and the probability that it indicates will, uh, of the outcome is, is in my favor uh, to do this. And then you stand by it and then you take on that flood of action on the, the number that's off market and you're okay with that. Books can't do that these days. They, they are a lot of them are going public, uh, DraftKings and so forth, and they have investors and they have to show profits. And if they are shown a number, uh, then they go to the bean counters and they say, "Well, why did you offer eight when it was only three and a half everywhere else?" Uh, they don't really care. Uh, and the, the bean counters don't. They just want you to be on the market and to make sure to uh, do the best you can to minimize your risk as possible. And that's kind of something like you mentioned, you know, they don't have the data and the analytics, uh, the algorithms and models behind it that are strong enough to where they can trust their number. And instead they're just going to always uh, follow what the market has. And that is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And do you think part of that going back to like the pressures of whether it's being a publicly traded company or just pressures of any company to drive betting volume and handle, do you think part of it's that too? They're like, well, we, if we do it at eight, we're not going to get any volume. So we, you know, it's, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. If we do it at three and a half, we, we get the volume, but we stand a chance of getting raked over the coals. But if we do it at eight, we're not going to get any takers. And so, you know, it's not going to matter anyways. Um, you know, is there, is there maybe that kind of thought process in it? Like they're, they're almost just like, okay, we got it. We got to focus on volume first and then just cross our fingers that, you know, the sharps don't uh, see what we're trying to do. I think they will get the volume at eight. The volume will come because of those guys, the betters that are auto take, they auto bet anytime they see a off market number. And they would have grabbed that eight, certainly, because, you know, they could have tried to middle it and take three and a half uh, mm-hmm. at the other books. And if they would have had an eight out there, they would have had a nice middle there. And that's what the sports books say. We'd like to be able to put up a, our own original number, but we just know what's going to happen. We're going to end up being lopsided, have to move and gravitate toward uh, the, the market number. And then they set themselves up for another middle. So if they were to bet, put up yeah. eight and all of a sudden they got pounded and it gets bet all the way down to three and a half, that's not a good position to be in for the, for the sports books. So um, people get on the sports books for copying uh, some of the influential books in the markets. And, and, you know, it's not a good look. What happened yesterday was not a, a good look for the industry or the odds makers, the sports books that did that. Uh, but others will say, hey, I would like to put up a number that is based on my uh, data and based on my odds. Uh, But I know if I do, I will end up having lopsided action. And uh, that is not something that my uh, superiors are looking for. Right. And so, you know, then that gets into, well, uh, how do they solve for this? And they solve for it by banning sharp action. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I guess the thing is, so going on the legal side, so clearly the, you know, the, the laws allow them to do whatever they want. 
Um, they, in fact, actually, as you were saying, the laws probably encourage that because they don't want people to become, for whatever moral reasons, uh, professional sports bettors. But I mean, doesn't it become also to a point where maybe the sharps could be even just, if anything, like a, a marketing loss for them? I mean, like, what? Why do they have to look at sharp action as um, just this? Oh gosh, we just can't have this loss over here. You know, is it? Is it? They're worried it'll spiral out of control, and then all the sharps will flood them or something. I I just don't see why they can't use it as a as a promotional tool. Um, you know, to uh, to to just you know uh, drive brand awareness. Uh, you know, make a name for themselves. You know, just get just increase the volume, even if it might take some of a of a hit could write that off as a marketing expense to, Hey, you know what? We've just got this pool of people over here. It's no different than like, for example, like, you know, I go to Vegas, you know, I gamble pretty big, um, but I get really, really, really great comps. And uh, I've done very well in Vegas the last few years, um, you know, just, just, just playing uh, table games and, and getting great comps. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of it is, you know, I, I mean, statistically, of course, it's very different than sports betting statistically the house has the advantage, but also, you know, I'm, I'm tipping well, you know, I'm bringing friends, I'm, I'm being a pleasant, you know, pleasure to be around, you know, I'm doing all the other things that, that they care. And I'm, I'm a walking advertisement, you know, I post on, you know, social media, like the chips that I won and stuff like that. Like, don't they ever think about that? Why is it just, oh, this person won or is even winning a little bit more frequently than they should? Boom, they're done. I think they're, I'm not painting with a, a too broad a brush here, uh, but there is a element of the professional gambler society um, that are angle shooters and um, become super disgruntled and you may be, uh, like you said, a, an advertisement for them on social media where these guys instead go after the, the sports books and just rip them to shreds all the time. And there has been enough bad experiences uh, from some of the bookmakers that they say it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it because uh, that some of these guys uh, take shots at me. Some of these guys uh, pick off bad numbers if, if we make a mistake. And, then, you know, we can get into that to uh, palpable errors and so forth. But sometimes there is human error involved when I make uh, Troy a 28-point favorite over LSU and I meant to have an LSU 28. And it's just a, I fat-fingered the number. And, okay. you know, there's a story in Vegas that that happened. Uh, um, I think it was about 10 to 15 years ago. And it ended up on a parlay card, and it print it got printed on there that, that Troy was uh, the fa favorite over LSU uh, by a bunch of points. And <laughs> if those teams aren't right, it's somewhere around there. But all these guys went in there and filled out all these cards, building these parlays around that game because once you get to a game with that huge of edge on it, it eliminates the house edge. And some people say, "Well, the book shouldn't have made the mistake. I should be allowed to say it." And the other one should say, "Hey." Why didn't you go up to the sports book and say, "Look, hey, you got an hair here. I, you know, I don't want to take advantage of that." So, uh, so you, there is a hostile relationship right now, and it is only becoming more hostile between the sharp betters and the sports books, and that's unfortunate. So, so it feels like a little bit of a vicious cycle or circle exactly. here, right? You, you know, the sports betters or the sharps, excuse me, they jump on any little thing that they can, and that irritates the the, uh, the bookies. And they, in turn, um, you know, uh, are, are so irritated at the behavior of the Sharps that they're just like, fine, screw you. I'm not going to even let you play at all. And then then because of that, then the Sharps feel like, well, I have to take advantage of any little thing I can because I could get banned at any moment. I need to make my money while I can. 
Um, so I'm going to just jump. I mean, this may be the only money I make all year. So then they just totally try to rake them over the coals because um, they, they realize like they may not be able to play uh, for a while. So it, it's interesting. Like I, I still come back to, I think this problem gets solved for with better and more efficient data. And when, when I did the podcast with, with Dan from Cleet Street, I, I, that was one of the big things we talked about was just efficiency and data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and why is somebody typing a number in, right? You know, why is this not being more run algorithmically or, or with AI? Uh, and like I said, with data scientists and, you know, uh, if somebody, if there is, if there is a data entry that still has to take place, you know, why is that not being automatically like, like reviewed before it goes public kind of thing? Like, why are we still in these manual processes? Because that's, that to me, it all feels like it comes back to that, 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 that like mislines, uh, create uh, sharp, uh, you know, uh, jumping on it by sharps, which then creates this hostility from, uh, you know, how bookmakers feel about the sharps, which then leads to banning, which then leads to more sharps, you know, trying to jump on things that maybe, you know, a, a reasonable person wouldn't do that. Uh, and like I said, it's a vicious cycle. It just feels like why is sports, you know, uh, why are sports books and sports book lines and odds making, why is that still feels like stuck in like the 80s? <laughs> It definitely could use some evolution. I, I will say that even some of the modern books that are using more algorithms to uh, implement their lines, well, somebody puts the data into those algorithms, right? And there was an example of this with FanDuel um, over in New Jersey and Indiana just a couple weeks ago. It was actually in mid-July yeah. when this happened. You may have, have seen the story, but uh, they had a vendor who was putting up these new Asian handicap markets on soccer. And there was one that was plus five goals for Cincinnati FC versus Atlanta United MLS play plus five goals. That looks ridiculous, first of all, but it was a legitimate (laughs) market. They were trying to put it. What was really screwed up with it, though, is they offered Cincinnati plus five goals at minus one thirty four. Minus one thirty four for those that may not realize it is is a short favorite. It's not, or you know, it's it's not a big big favorite. Those odds should have been more like minus five thousand or, oh, yeah. or or something like that. And it happened. The algorithm had spit these out, uh, and it, it skewed those numbers in uh, Premier League, uh, Serie A, uh, La Liga. It, it did it across the boards. And guess what? The professional betters saw it and they took advantage of it. So I feel like there's always going to be um, an element of human error. Of course there is, right? You, you, you can't people tell people, quit making mistakes, that sure. they're going to make mistakes. And hopefully we can lessen those and decrease those to a point where we get less of these stories. Um, just to, for betters, a little bit of, of good news, though, that the gaming commission there in New Jersey, Division of Gaming yeah. Enforcement, did rule in front of for, favor of the betters, and all those guys got paid. So uh, that's a little bit of good news. Oftentimes, though, those rulings do not go in the betters' favor. Yeah, and so, I mean, uh, you know, maybe this might be a good opportunity to, t- to talk about, like, peer-to-peer. So obviously, mm-hmm. you know, that's what we do here at Zen Sports. But, you know, just in general, you know, why – I don't know. I mean, I can talk about this too, but why do you feel like, you know, it's taking so long for that kind of business model to take shape when, if the real problem is whether it's an algorithm, a guy in a back room or whatever it might be, just setting odds for everybody. Why isn't it the reverse where it's everybody setting the lines uh, for, for people instead? Like what, why, why are we still not, you know, looking at those kinds of 
business models. I, I also have an answer to that too, but I want to hear your thoughts first, you know, as to why, you know, we're not, we're not getting in that direction or will we be getting in that direction? You know, just given the challenges that, that traditional bookmaking faces. My short answer is the wire act. Um, the wire act is the federal law that prevents bets go from going across state lines with some exemptions involved. And without that, uh, the liquidity required for a good peer-to-peer market has would be difficult to achieve. I, I'm anxious to see how you guys uh, fare in, in Nevada. Um, I know uh, Smartkits, you guys are probably familiar with them. We're going to be one of your competitors at an exchange over in the UK. Uh, they came over here. Uh, they're in the, uh, is it the Indiana or the Colorado market? They're in one of those markets, uh, but they're just doing a traditional sports book at this time. And instead of launching their exchange, and when I talked to Jason Trost is his name, a real sharp guy, uh, he, he said, we just, we don't think we can get the liquidity until we can go multiple states and until that happens, it'll stop. So that's my answer. Short answer, if the Buyer Act is in place, it makes it extremely difficult for an exchange model to occur. So I don't want to uh, uh, speak before I have it in my hands. Um, But so I I want to touch on something that specifically at Zen Sports that we're doing uh, that speaks to that. And I'm only, you know, getting into this because of what you just said. So we are actually in the process of having our attorneys uh, one of the potential safe harbors of the Wire Act is um, safe location in the U.S. to uh, uh, or legal location in the U.S. to legal location overseas. Mm-hmm. So instead of pooling state to state, pooling state to overseas. And uh, so we, you know, we operate overseas right now. And uh, so I'm, I'm hoping I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but I'm hoping we have a legal opinion in our hands on that in the next uh, few weeks um, uh, about that. Uh, they're you know, doing the deep, deep, deep dive research on that. Uh, and I, I, I think there's actually a pretty high likelihood that we can probably get that okay. um, as one of the safe harbors to the Wire Act. I, I, again, I don't want to speak until we have that, um, but we are looking into that. And I think that could be, you know, an interesting workaround uh, too. So, I mean, you know, from a pooling perspective, yeah, liquidity is obviously critical. Um, so if you, can, if you can at least pool state to international and vice versa, then for the most part, you don't really have an issue. I believe Nevada also passed a, a law, a state law, uh, that would allow uh, right. licensees in Nevada to take uh, bets uh, across state lines from other legal jurisdictions. Uh, it really gets sticky there when you get the state law uh, contradicting the federal law and everything. But uh, just a little side note there, there is something in Nevada's uh, laws that allow that as well. Right. And so while we're not attorneys here, uh, I, I do want to just kind of a little bit pontificate on the Wire Act here. So, um, I mean, I, I definitely, and it's just, again, pure opinion, not a lawyer, don't take it as legal advice to anybody out there listening, but I, I could see someday the Wire Act being challenged too, uh, similar to PASPA. Um, I mean, let's let's be real, the Wire Act is, what, 50-some years old. Uh, you know, it was created during a time when uh, sports betting was really, truly, just truly the unsavoriest of characters. Uh, you know, that, that the government was trying to uh, combat. And, uh, and so that's not the case at all. I mean, you have legal publicly traded companies that are doing this. I don't think there was ever envisioned a time when sports betting would be mainstream when the Wire Act was created. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't have been created as such. Uh, and it just, it, it just feels completely, utterly antiquated. And it, it just, it, it's silly, right? I mean, why, why uh, you know, for the reasons you, you know, kind of discussed, like, you know, if it, if you're allowing it within the state borders, what, what is the problem across? And, you know, if, if, if you're a licensed 
uh, sportsbook operator, you're a licensed sportsbook operator. It's just that simple. Uh, now, obviously, you can't take it in states that are not legal. That's fine. But why you can't go between states that are legal, it just, it just, it just feels very, very arbitrary. Yeah, it, it kind of goes back to my whole thing about their more the uh, there's still this moral objection to the business of betting. Um, I I don't know what else you can possibly think. What you just said, why am I legal in this state, but I can't take a bet from a state that I'm also legal in? If I were to go over there, and many of the sportsbooks are doing that. I mean, your William Hills are are in a half dozen states or or, or more right now, uh, but. They're supposed to pretend like they're not looking at the entire pool of money. Uh, right. Yeah. Seems, I mean, they're you know, probably fake. doing it in their back office, right? Yeah. I mean, of course you're <laughs> going to look at your entire pool of money. It, it, it's, it's just absurd. And, uh, you know, going back to the wire act when it was put in place, I want to say it was 51. Um, yeah, uh, the John F. Kennedy's brother, Robert was, uh, the attorney general. And at the time he released a, a, a statement about it and saying that it was not to target the betters. It was only to go after the business of betting. If you were in the business of betting as a bookmaker, uh, then it would go after you. So uh, again, they, they just seemed like they're not comfortable with the business of betting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> totally agree. And I, I think that's changing though. I think, I you know, I, I, I think that, uh, well, I mean, just, just, generationally right you know we talked about millennials and gen z that want it uh uh you know and as they continue to vote in or vote out you know uh representatives uh both at the state and federal level you know they're going to speak with their voice um and and say hey look this is ridiculous why don't we have this uh those people will obviously start running for office and they're going to say hey you know we want to be able to to have this there's no reason why we can't um you're going to see it i think and we haven't talked about the media side which we will here in a little bit but you're going to, in my opinion, you're going to start to see it pop up on broadcasts eventually, or you at least you'll have the ability to turn on or turn that off um, type of thing. I mean, it's, it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be in the arenas and the stadiums, as you mentioned. It's like you're not going to be able to get away from it. Um, and so why that piece of antiquated, you know, legislation that's, yeah, okay, 70 years old then uh, is, is still around is just, I, 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 don't, it's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see it lasting. I mean, it's just a personal opinion, but I, 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 say, I say its days are numbered. Um, you know, either legislatively or for whoever, whomever wants to spend the money to uh, fight in the court system. I, I could, I could easily see the Supreme Court striking that down too. And they would, I mean, they could use PASPA as, as a precedence, right? Um, and say, look, you know, you're allowing this, but not allowing that, you know, that, that seems like it makes sense. Um, so, uh, well, why don't we use that as a segue to talk about the media? So, you know, <laughs> I know uh, media companies are not just going to uh, come out and uh, just, like I said, start popping up uh, lines on the bottom of the broadcast yet. Uh, you know, they, they still want a little bit of arm length, arm's length there from the actual betting piece. So, uh, but that being said, Fox last September launched Fox Bet <laughs> in a couple of states. And I now, of course, you know, Murdoch is uh, definitely more aggressive in those things. But I, I definitely see other media companies really wanting to get into this. Um, I just confidentially, I, 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 you know, see and talk to media companies that uh, like, for example, like, you know, we've started looking into to like offering our, our solution as a white label. And, and we definitely have interest for some of the, from some of those companies. So there's definitely interest there. So you work for a media company. Um, you don't have to speak specifically to ESPN. You can keep this general. But like, what are your thoughts on the media's future involvement uh, when it comes to uh, uh, sports betting? 
it's uh, it's a little more aggressive as well than I thought it would be uh, to come out of the vote. Um, like you said, we have a Fox bet and we have Penn National that bought uh, Barstool Sports uh, to put up a, a sports book. Uh, the score is another example. Uh, DraftKings and Bleacher Report are, are you know, have been more um, integrated into the golf broadcast lately. Um, FanDuel is hiring a lot of media people uh, to be kind of influencers. Um, so it is definitely gravitating and there are going to be, uh, more and more elements of it. Um, one thing that I'm really excited about specifically to ESPN, uh, is this new show we have called better days coming up. It's going to be on ESPN plus the little, uh, you know, pay-per-view, uh, app type thing. Um, but it's Mike Greenberg and he's going to have, it's called better days. And it is going to be about storytelling from the gambling. And that's where I really think there's a void in this space of coverage. Everybody wants to give their picks and say what, whatever. Uh, but the stories, like I mentioned way back in the beginning of here, uh, are, are really just fascinating that come out of here. And he's going to explore those. So um, I'd like to see more elements of storytelling into the media and less uh, about picks and analysis. Um, but it's definitely growing. And I guess the biggest example I would give was just, uh, was it yesterday or two days ago, uh, before the Lakers Blazers game, uh, Charles Barkley and Shaq were on TNT talking about, uh, you know, Charles was all over the Blazers. He wanted to bet on the Blazers, but, uh, I think he was in Georgia at the time and you can't bet on FanDuel here in Georgia, uh, mm. at this time. And he was like, come on, FanDuel, give me an exemption. And Shaq said, Chuck, I got cousins everywhere, kind of implementing that, he, you know, he could get the bet placed in other states. Uh, so I thought that just the casualness of that, if that would have happened, you know, six, seven years ago, even people would have been flipping out. But this was yeah. just kind of an everyday thing now. So, uh, gosh, I, it, it is already integrated into the media uh, way faster than I thought it would be. Yeah. So, okay. So two things there. One is I love the idea. I mean, they should do a 30 for 30 and if they haven't already on some of the histories of sports betting i think that would be fascinating yeah um that would be that would be awesome uh so from a historical perspective but then so my my take is i think the engagement piece is is huge right so if you've got a game that's a blowout at halftime you know what's going to keep people watching this is why the leagues care about it so much now is they recognize it's a way to keep people engaged even if a game is a blowout Mm -hmm. or if it's just a dog of a game going into it right um you know if it's not compelling all the way throughout the entire thing um, there's one thing that will still keep people watching, which is sports betting. Sure. <laughs> so, um, and so media, of course, you know, uh, you know, broadcasts especially care about that. Um, so I, I think you might start to, I, I think you'll start to maybe see like little segments here and there, um, where maybe they'll go off and do like their corner or, uh, you know, for a minute or 30 seconds or something like that. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe there'll be a way to, you know, as more controls and, or, or like parental controls, like, you know, uh, uh, be are, are given uh you know people could like uh you know say hey i don't want to i don't want to see that stuff if they really like you know against that um they'll have some choice there um so that if they don't want to force fed to them uh they don't have to but i, I think you're going to start to see it more woven into broadcasts and more woven into uh analyses and stuff like that um you know moving forward which i think is i think it's great because like it is a big part of it and I think for us to like kind of pretend like it doesn't exist doesn't make sense. And I think you're starting to see that shift too. And I totally agree with you. Like that exchange between Charles and Shaq never would have happened six, seven years ago. They would have, they would have, 
<laughs> I would have uh, bleeped that out for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I would add, you know, the end game here, right, is what the NBA has already done. They have their alternate broadcast, which is betting centric. And right now you're not able to watch that broadcast and click on the screen and place a bet. But eventually you're going to be, as you are in the UK, where some of these games are streamed uh, on a sportsbook site. So uh, you'll be have a same screen experience where I can sit here and watch the game, click on a button and place my bet on the same platform. Uh, that That's eventually what's going to happen here. But uh, got a few more years, I would think, before that happens. Yeah, that's definitely going to happen. <clears throat> so one area I also want to touch in is, um, you know, specifically within the U.S., how the legalization is happening, happening state by state. So, um, you know, around, let's say it's about 18 states plus District of Columbia have legalized it. Mm-hmm. You know, several more states, you know, have legislation in the works, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I actually track on the ESPN tracker. I think you guys do a good job with that state by state tracker uh, that you have up that gets updated all the time. <clears throat> I, I think <laughs> so just the, this is like maybe a little bit stating the obvious or preaching the choir, I think the one major takeaway for for uh, you know someone like me that's involved with a sports betting company is just I just cannot believe and I'd love to get your thoughts on this how unbelievably fragmented and different each state's licensing process is and I mean it's it's literally like dealing with fifty different countries and. Um, and it's and it's not easy. And then the the part where they have to have uh, either ownership of a brick and mortar or partnership of brick and mortar, except for Tennessee, I'm just I'm really baffled at that. So, what are your thoughts on the fact that almost all the states a have different processes? B will except for again Tennessee will not allow just you know mobile or, or online only. And C, what do you feel like the future of the legalization of other states looks like? Well, you know, I guess the answer to smooth everything out would be to have federal legislation. Everybody's scared of that. They don't want the feds to get involved. Uh, But you're right. We do have a wide variety of rules and regulations in place, depending on what state uh, you're involved in. And that's something that Adam Silver warned on early on that he did not want. He did not want a what he called a hodgepodge of of regulations for these states. Uh, And unfortunately, that's what we have currently, and some of them are better than others. The tax rates vary in places, even the age to bet. You only have to be 18 to bet in D.C., uh, where the most states are, are 21. Uh, so until we get some sort of uniformity uh, involved, it's going to be difficult for uh, especially uh, newer companies to try to pay the licensing fees in all these different states and implied by all the different regulations and the uh, security checks that they have to run on, on their back-end technology and, and so forth. Uh, in terms of the, the uh, casinos, um, you know, that is uh, their lobbying impact, right? I mean, it's their influence that they have. The casino industry is a huge industry and it's powerful. Uh, and they are going to do whatever they can. Illinois is a great example of how uh, the casinos have done right. as much as they can to keep the new players out, the, the DraftKings and the FanDuel's. Uh, they want to keep everything in the, in the casino, where these other companies, including yours, would rather have a more of an independent thing about it. And uh, that's going to be a tough, tough battle. It's basically going to become the sports leagues who are partnering with the Fandals and DraftKings mostly uh, versus the casino industry for who ultimately gets the the biggest chunk of the pie. So uh, that is a fight that's definitely going to continue to happen. 
Well, and, and so if you look at like Tennessee, which does allow for online only, but their license fee is pretty absurd. I think it's 750K. Uh, or at least absurd for uh, a company like us. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I think when you look at things like being in a, in a post-COVID world, although I think, I think we're going to be getting back to normal here at some point. Um, I don't think it's, you know, we're going to be like stuck in our homes forever. Um, and, you know, you look at that, plus just generational shifts, right? You know, millennials and Gen Z, they want to do things on their phone. I mean, they're not saying that they won't, you know, go to for a weekend in Vegas or, you know, whatever it might be. But I think like, oh, the fact that I have to drive to a brick and mortar casino to place a bet. I mean, that just, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't see that as a wave of the future. Um, and so, you know, despite how hard they may lobby, I think, you know, I, I do think ultimately technology wins. It usually always does. Um, and so I do think states like Tennessee can, can actually look at this as a potential competitive advantage and say, hey, you know what? Like, uh, you know, not a lot of other states are doing it this way. We could do it this way and appeal to everybody um and uh and, and and you know bring in as much tax revenue as possible um and then you know if enough states do that then that does put pressure on the other states that haven't um done it because you know their neighbors are, are making it easy and so you know there's the eventually like it'll kind of snowball um and, and hopefully make it easier i also think and love to get your thoughts on this you know now that you know we're you know again in the post-covid world where a lot of states are having budget shortfalls and tax revenue shortages and other areas. Like I would think that states are just going to be like uh, lapping this up as a, as another source of of revenue. And I, I think this actually accelerates the legalization of sports betting across the U S what are your thoughts on that? I, I've wondered that myself. I think the majority of people that I have stakeholders that I've spoken with agree with you that it does accelerate I would say that sports betting has been rocket speed in terms of legislation uh, compared to other areas. Uh, the amount that you said, 18 states, District of Columbia, uh, we have Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, uh, maybe missing one, all already passed legislation as well. Virginia being the second state that's uh, online only. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that they're going to legislatures are going to have a lot on their plate, obviously, with the uh, impact of COVID. Um, and that also means they're going to be looking for new sources of revenue and sports betting certainly uh, is one of those. It is not a, uh, a fix all for all budget gaps by any means, uh, but it does drive revenue. And, you know, not only with just the straight win or loss from from the sports books, but from other casinos and other uh, job creation type things. So uh, I, I'm going to agree with the majority right now. I do worry that everybody's going to have so much on their plate that maybe sports betting doesn't rise quite uh, to the top of it. But uh, I still think there will be I'll say three or four more states, uh, at least in 2021, uh, get it done. And I'm going to say Ohio, Kentucky, Louisiana. Uh, which other one was I thinking of? Mm, maybe one of the Dakotas get it done. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, four to five more states coming. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. And, and so, uh, well, just out here in California, it's pretty frustrating because actually it probably COVID actually hurt it because they were actually going to get a ballot measure uh, mm -hmm. this fall uh, for it. And then they weren't able to collect signatures due to COVID <laughs> uh, to get it on the ballot. 
Uh, and so because of that, uh, actually now it's like looking like 21, 20, uh, maybe even 2022 before they can revisit again. But um, so that is also probably the, the reverse. Do you think we're ever going to see it legalized at the federal level? Yes, I think there will be some uh, a framework put in place um, that states can adopt. So it just won't be legal everywhere. But if states choose to adopt the federal framework, and I eventually think we're going to see a nationwide sports betting exchange uh, that will allow, you know, be similar to the stock exchange uh, where people will buy and sell and trade uh, sports bets. And I, I think that is seems like a, a long time away, but I think it is part of the end game that will eventually occur. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. Um, I think that as the stigma continues to wear off, as it becomes part of the fabric of our everyday lives as we're watching sports, um, and you see it in broadcasts, and you see it in the news, and you see it on social media, and you're talking with your friends, and it's no big deal. Um, you're just, it's just, it's just going to get to the point where legislate or you know, uh, uh, politicians are not going to look at it as like political suicide to to enact that kind of legislation. Whereas maybe, you know, of course, ten years ago they'd probably go, "Gosh, I'm just, I'm just going to get voted out of office if I do this." You know, that nobody will really care. Um, mm you know, at, at, at the minimum. And, 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 and if anything, they'll probably be like, you know, thanks for doing that. Right. Um, you know, so they, they actually could be a political win, not just a, a neutral uh, outcome for them, which I think is, uh, which I think is uh, amazing. And, you know, interesting, you use the word exchange, like people like to say that, like, for example, Zen sports is an exchange. I, I prefer to use the term marketplace, because we're actually a marketplace. Like I, I look at it as an exchange as you own something, mm-hmm. and you and you buy and sell it, or you trade it. Um, like much closer to like a prop swap type of, uh, um, you know, Mm -hmm. product. Whereas like Zen sports is a marketplace. You don't own anything. You're just, uh, adding uh, content essentially, or inventory is a better word. Uh, You're adding inventory to a marketplace for people to buy. It's much closer to Uber or Airbnb, uh, but for sports betting. Um, I actually think that there can be room for both, uh, both marketplaces and exchanges because, you know, exchanges like, Hey, uh, I want to cash out of this, bet. like, I, I just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a terrible bet and I'm going to sell for pennies on the dollar, or it's a great bet. And I'm going to sell it for two, three, four, five X. I just want out, you know, for whatever reasons I want the liquidity. Um, so I, I, I think there's going to be a, a appetite for both, both if you have ownership of a, you know, an electronic ticket uh, on a, on a bet. And if you are just proposing something to others, uh, you know, inventory uh, that you want to sell, uh, or, or buy. So I think it's um I think both could actually really be very viable and I think both are are definitely the future. Um, I think they're complimentary. Can you talk for sure. That? I mean I, I I we and you you hit one word we can just keep saying is liquidity over and over and over. That's going to be the key to everything. And if you have multiple marketplaces that uh, will provide you with that liquidity, uh, it's more beneficial. Yeah, and and I think I still think you know, just like with traditional exchanges, and especially we encounter this uh, in cryptocurrency world, you know, you get market makers that uh, provide liquidity um, because, you know, they, you know, that that's that's always important, right? Um, and I think, you know, uh, in an exchange or in a marketplace environment, you can incentivize uh, market makers by charging lower fees. Like, so for example, like we charge lower fees to makers than we do to takers. Mm-hmm. And uh, that incentivizes people to add liquidity 
and you pay a little bit more if you want to take liquidity out. Um, and I think that's the the right approach there, um, you know, to, to, to that as well as, you know, getting like market makers um, and, and making it easy for them. So for example, like we launched an open API that allows people to market make, uh, you know, uh, bets without having to go one by one in the app or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, making it easy for market makers um, and incentivizing them to do so, uh, you know, to provide that liquidity. Because, yeah, of course, liquidity is key. If you come in and there's nothing there, you're going to say this sucks and you're going to leave. <laughs> it's just like Uber. That's why Uber paid all that money for years and years and years to get drivers, right? Because that's sure. their, that was their form of liquidity. If you open up the app and there's no drivers, you're going to say this sucks, I'm out. Um, that's a great analogy. And so, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that that inventory and that liquidity is is critical. But I think there's definitely ways to solve for that. You know, both through incentivizations and uh, and technology making it easy. Um, well, you know, uh, we're we're past the one hour mark, and I have to say the time flew by. This was super uh, engaging and interesting. Um, put a word in uh, if you can over there at ESPN to to do that thirty for thirty on the history of sports betting, uh, <laughs> or or any kind of other documentaries. I would love to see something on that. I think it's uh, I think it's been a fascinating history and. I think moving forward, it's just it's 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 really really exciting, you know where it's going. I think it's all trending, even despite some of these hiccups we've talked about. I think it's all just trending in the right direction. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so, uh, and I, I'm anxious to see how you guys uh, perform as uh, in, in Nevada, and mm-hmm. uh, you know check out that Better Day show that's coming up. I don't mean to to pump it too much, but it's pretty cool. In September, it'll start launching on ESPN Plus, so uh, check that out until we get a, a, a thirty for thirty documentary. Yeah, and is it B E T T O R? Is it yep. in the form of like better? Awesome. Yep. So better days or better day? Better days. Better days. Okay, with Mike with Mike Greenberg. Yep. Awesome. Okay, well, I'm definitely checking it out. Uh, everyone out there in the audience here at Bowling Chain, check that out coming next month. And uh, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Mark. 